Have you been feeling any hopelessness lately? I know for some people, as this pandemic has dragged on and on, uh, a, a feeling of hopelessness has begun to creep in at times. And I know I'll, I will admit that I have struggled on and off with a sense of hopelessness. And fortunately, what we're going to look at in today's message, Psalm 2, is a great way to address that hopelessness that many of us feel. Welcome to Bethel Christian Fellowship. We are a house of prayer for all nations. We're called to radiate God's love and joy and life out to the whole world, to all the nations in the world, and welcome them among us. Uh, we're located here in the heart of St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, God has uh, called us to hold up the light of his gospel to the world. So we're so glad that you joined us this morning. My name is Andrew Gross. I'm the associate pastor here, and uh, I'm, I'm so grateful that uh, you'll be joining us. So last week, we talked about how Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 used to be a single psalm. And uh, they were the introduction to the entire book of Psalms. And that's important to know because those two Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, introduce probably the two biggest themes of the book of, of Psalms. The first theme is the Torah or the teaching and instruction of God. And uh, we looked at that in last week's message with Psalm 1. And the second theme is the coming of the just king. And we're going to look at that today in Psalm 2. Now, it's important to know this about the background of the Psalms because, uh, you see, the Psalms is what gave the Jews hope in probably the darkest period of their history. I'm talking about the period of the exile, and that was the 70 years when uh, the, ba the Babylonians came, conquered the kingdom of Judah, and they carted off a whole bunch of the Jews to be captives uh, and live away from their home in uh, the city of Babylon, far away. And it was during that time that the book of Psalms was pieced together. Now, the, the individual Psalms had already existed for hundreds of years, but uh, it was during the exile that they came together as a single piece. And that's really important to know because without their own land, without their own king, and without their own temple where they could meet with God, the Israel, the, the Jews needed a way to connect with God, and that's what the Psalms provided. The Psalms became something like, I called it last week, a, a mobile temple. Um, uh, the temple was a place where you could meet with God, but with no temple in existence, the Psalms promised the Israelites uh, and the exiled Jews that if they would meditate on God's message, God's instruction, using the Psalms, they also could meet with God. And that's what gave the uh, Jews hope in the middle of their darkest hour. And that's really important for us to know because we're also in exile. Until Jesus gets back, uh, until he returns with the new kingdom and the new earth, the New Testament says that we are also, like the Jews in those 70 years, we're exiles. This isn't our home. This is not where we were intended to finally live. And uh, for many of us, the pandemic is making that sense of exile worse. 
a lot of us go through seasons, could be grief, could be a, a time of loss or a particular challenge. A lot of us go through intense seasons where we really are feeling uh, our exile nature. We're feeling it and, and, and that can exhaust us. Last week when we looked at Psalm 1, we took a look at how God addresses that exhaustion we feel when we are in exile. This week through Psalm 2, we are going to look at how God wants to help us with our hopelessness. All right, well, let's get into Psalm 2 and, and read that together. So it's a very short psalm. Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So quite the scene here in verses 1 through 3. There's this picture of all these rebellious nations surrounding Jerusalem, filled with rage, filled with anger that they're being made to submit to this God. And they're plotting and conspiring and figuring out how they can cast off the rule of God. Uh, and of course, that's causing all kinds of tension and foment and, and, uh, and all kinds of challenges throughout the world. Well, interestingly, in verse four, God responds not by wringing his hands with anxiety, not by worrying, what am I going to do with these rebels? Oh, no, oh, no. Instead, it says in verse four that God laughs at them. God laughs at them. And then in verse six, he gives the reason why he laughs at them. It's because he installs his king. Now, in one sense, that's almost a ridiculous picture because if you know anything about the ancient world, you know that uh, Jerusalem was a, it was a fairly insignificant town in those days. And the mountain of Zion, well, I mean, it's a nice mountain, but it's no Mount Everest. It's not that impressive. <laughs> and the kingdom of Judah at the time was a pretty insignificant kingdom. And this little insignificant town on an insignificant mountain in an insignificant kingdom was surrounded by these vast empires. And, uh, and so it's almost silly here uh, to claim what this psalm is claiming, uh, which is uh, that by installing his king on Mount Zion, 
God was going to do something about these rebellious nations. Verse 7 gets uh, really interesting because God continues this boasting, says, you are my son. Now, uh, it was common in the ancient world uh, for a king to be called a son of a god or a son of the gods. But what's different here is that this king is called the son of the god. And it's one of the reasons we think that this may have been uh, like a coronation poem, a poem they would sing or recite at the coronation of a king. But if we look at this through New Testament eyes, the New Testament at least twice claims this verse is, is like a proof text that Jesus is that Messiah promised here in uh, Psalm 2. Verse 8 promises to uh, promises that God is going to give this new king the nations if he asks for them. And then uh, verse 9 promises that God is going to subdue these nations. And uh, verses 10 through 12, there's this warning to the nations to submit uh, to this king. And it's it ends with this beautiful promise that if these nations do submit to him, if they take refuge in him, as it says, then they will find blessedness or happiness. So a, a really fascinating psalm with amazing imagery. But why does it give us hope? What's hopeful about this coronation poem of, of a king that lived so long ago? Well, first of all, the first reason it gives us hope is that it is uh, pretty similar to the situation we find ourselves in today. Uh, we also, like ancient kingdom of Judah, are surrounded by rebellious nations. Now, I, I don't, when I say nations, I don't necessarily mean governments that are consciously fighting God. Uh, there are some of those in the world. Most nations that are fighting God don't even realize it. But I'm more talking about systems of thought, worldviews, um, uh, whole uh, ways of approaching the world, uh, what the New Testament calls the powers and the principalities. Uh, that phrase, powers and principalities, can refer both to uh, demonic forces and it can refer to institutions and worldviews and systems of thought. And so it's, it's these powers and principalities that are surrounding us and are seething with rage against the, the rule of God. Uh, and, uh, and that's actually somewhat similar to what the uh, people in the kingdom of Judah were experiencing so long ago. And as with Jerusalem, remember I said Jerusalem was a pretty insignificant town on a pretty insignificant mountain in a pretty insignificant kingdom surrounded by these vast empires. Well, we also, as Christians, often feel surrounded uh, by vast powers that are much greater than us. And it's always been that way. If you look at any period of Christian history, Christians have, sincere followers of Christ have felt surrounded by these massive powers that seem to have the ability to, to crush them in a, in a moment. Uh, and so uh, our situation is somewhat similar to what they were in so many years ago, so many centuries ago. Well, the second reason this gives us hope is that the same solution that God gives to the people of Judah so long ago is the solution he gives to us. And that solution is to install his king as the Lord of all. So you and I can actually take heart. 
See, for the Israelites, this poem reminded them that God wasn't done with them, even though they were in the exile, even though it looked like they had no king and no future. Uh, this poem reminded them God was, wasn't done with them, and it gave them this faint glimmer of a future Messiah. But in our case, what's amazing about this and what should fill us all with hope is that this king described here and prophesied here in chapter, or Psalm 2, this king has already been installed. This king that the Jews were waiting for and longing for and uh, hoping to vanquish their enemies, this king has already been installed. When Jesus came here to earth, he said, the kingdom is here. And when he uh, was lifted up on a cross in that moment, he truly took his rightful place on his throne. And it's not, and, and the, the hope doesn't just stop there. The father is currently fulfilling what he said he would do in this passage in verse eight, when he says, ask me and I will give the nations as your inheritance. In real time, right before our eyes, we see people group after people group, nation after nation, bowing the knee to King Jesus and accepting him as their king, surrendering to him as their king. Jesus, God the Son, has been asking God the Father for the nations for the last 2,000 years, and God the Father has been giving him the nations. And, and we can trace this for the last 2,000 years, how they, we've seen the gospel spread from place to place to place until now, the entire world, there's almost no country in the entire world that doesn't have a viable gospel witness. And yes, there are uh, there are quite a number of uh, smaller people groups, language groups that don't yet have a gospel witness, but that number is shrinking year by year. Uh, so we have actually seen this king subduing the nations under him. And it doesn't stop there. We know that Jesus will bring all the nations to justice. All the powers and principalities, all of the worldviews, all of the systems of thought, King Jesus is going to inevitably bring every one of them into subjection to him and bring them to justice. That means all of our grievances will finally be redressed. It means that uh, all of the unjust pain and suffering we've gone through will finally uh, be treated with justice. Uh, that means all of our pain and suffering will finally be satisfied when we see this just king enthroned over the whole world. How do, how do we know this is for sure going to happen? Because Jesus's resurrection guarantees it. When Jesus reversed death itself and rose from the dead, that was the sign that proves to us that this coming kingdom is inevitably going to happen. So the point here is that the Jews, the, the way they were able to survive their exile was uh, to put their hope in this just king. And it, when they had no king, uh, when they were in the middle of their exile, they survived by putting their hope in the truth of Psalm 2. And that's how you and I can survive, not just survive, that's how you and I can thrive in our faith here and now. 
you and I right now can boast in this king who has already been installed on the holy mountain. You and I right now can rejoice as we watch nation after nation, people, after, people group after people group, subdued under the authority of Jesus Christ. And you and I can anticipate his second coming when he will bring justice for all. And all of the nations and all the powers and principalities will finally be made subject to him. Now, it's true that we live in what, uh, what theologians call the already not yet tension. That means he's already been installed as king, but we do not yet see the full, complete uh, fulfillment of uh, his kingdom. And, uh, and that's, that's difficult for us to live in that tension. Uh, but the Christians who s survive and thrive in that tension are the ones who boast in this king already installed and it, who rejoice in they, when they see the kingdom advancing and then who anticipate his second coming. This is, this is how we can laugh along with God. Remember, uh, it says there in verse 4 that this king laughs at, he actually scoffs at these rebellious nations. And you and I can join with God laughing. Rather than wringing our hands in anxiety and worry, oh no, what's God going to do? What are we going to do? As we see all these rebellious nations, we can actually join God in laughing at them because we know that he has installed his king uh, on Zion, his holy mountain. This is the preoccupation. This is the meditation. This is, this is what... Uh, this is the very thing that resilient, mature Christians have always meditated on. Uh, if you've wondered, how, how am I supposed to get through these difficult times? Meditate on the truths of Psalm 2 so that uh, that's what's going to feed your spirit. That's what's going to give you the strength to thrive. Uh, that, that's, and that's what resilient, mature Christians have always done. So as I wrap up, I, I want to just ask you this, this question. Uh, have you been boasting in this, the installation of this just king? Have you been rejoicing as you watch his kingdom expand from people group to people group around the world? And are you anticipating, are you living in anticipation of his second coming when you will finally see the fulfillment of the justice that God has promised? Thank you.